Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, uh, the topic we're going to discuss today is around clinical decision support, and we are so fortunate to have uh, Dr. Dave Slauson with us today, an internationally recognized leader in this field. Uh, Dr. Slauson currently serves as the Vice Chair for Education and Scholarship within the Department of Family Medicine at Atrium Health, formerly known as Carolina's Healthcare System. He is a professor of family medicine with the University of North Carolina. He is also the B. Lewis Barnett Jr. Professor Emeritus of Family Medicine for the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Dr. Slauson holds an honorary professorship at Hong Kong University and he's an international lecturer in evidence-informed decision-making and information mastery. Now, I have to tell you, in full transparency, I want to add that I've had the pleasure and the privilege of working directly with uh, Dr. Dave Slauson, as well as our mutual colleague, Dr. John Franco, in the Department of Family Medicine at Atrium Health over the past year or so. We sit on a number of committees, clinical effectiveness committees, and uh, we are working uh, very, very diligently to deploy what Dr. Slauson has developed in an effort to improve outcomes of care and make it easier for physicians to do the right thing. And, and I have to just tell you uh, on a more personal note, the more I work with Dr. Slauson, uh, the more I want to work with them. And, and, and at the risk of sounding incredibly geeky, um, I, I have to say, even though I've spent years in the domain of quality improvement and patient quality and safety, I have never been so enthusiastic about evidence-based medicine as I am now. And that's that's quite honestly largely due to uh, Dave Slauson and his approach. So uh, I'm so excited to be speaking with him and to share his uh, experience, wisdom, uh, acumen with all of you today. Now, so this does serve as a little bit of a warning because uh, we are going to geek out a little bit and you may find yourself loving clinical decision support as much as I do right now. So, so Dave, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Well, thank you for that. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I can live up to all that, but I'll do my best. Oh, I, I have no concern about that. So um, let me ask you a question, Dave, and we've had a chance to talk. And so the, the one thing about this, um, well, actually, before we start, um, could you just in a very, very high level, just couple of sentences. Can you just set the playing field? What does clinical decision support mean? What is, what is it in a very, very basic level? Well, you know, people ask me that. It's kind of like what's that 30-second uh, elevator speech that you have? Um, just a, a quick thing. My, my colleague that I've done all this work with, Dr. Alan Shaughnessy, um, he uh, obviously is not joining us today, but he's up at Tufts. And so he and I have done all this work together. Um, I guess our main thing is we've always wanted to figure out realistic, real-world ways to make it so that clinicians have the best information available to them at any moment in time that will guide them to make the best possible decision that they can with their patients. We we do that through um, both trying to help set up information systems for them, but also more recently we've been really, and you'll ask me some more about this, um, working at um, changing the way clinicians look at information and how they make uh, decisions from that that same information that they would have had before, but make a di- different decision with it. And, and decisions, just in, again in broad strokes, what types of decisions are we talking about? Oh, um, you know, decisions on what type of treatments to recommend for patients, decisions on what what tests to order, what imaging to do. Um, pretty much, we 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 sort of say any intervention in medicine is an intervention and they all sort of live and and die by the same sword so we're really talking about any any sort of in, any sort of intervention in medicine okay so we're talking about prescribing medications doing diagnostic tests uh, blood tests imaging studies other more invasive diagnostics and and treatment as well is that right, right? And, and interventions and even making a decision about whether to make a referral or not you know, you and I both work in primary care, so that's obviously a big part for us. Absolutely. So, so now that we've sort of set the 
playing field. We know what we're talking about at a, at a basic level, and we'll, we'll obviously get much more into it. But um, I guess the question is, why is this so important to you? Why should it be important to uh, physicians, clinical leaders, administrators, uh, people who are paying for healthcare? What's what's what is the problem? Well, Zev, that's. I mean, we've that the answer to that question has sort of evolved over time. I would say early on, when when I first became interested in this, it was a it was more sort of the interest. It was it was the enthusiasm as to whether I could stay up to date and always be a good doctor and make good decisions and stay up with all the new changes in information. We we've sort of evolved through a time where we felt that having better information could help reduce waste and make it so that healthcare was more affordable and we could make it so that it was uh, more available to, to people. I think recently with some of the political changes and it's been less of an issue of availability, but more an issue of cost. Um, I think our, our interest has evolved into, um, you know, we want to maintain quality, but can we find a way to continue to be able to pay for the costs of that quality and at the same time not lose the ability to provide care for as many people as possible. It, it there's been a big move towards population-based health and, and um, you know, what does that mean and how can we do that and make that available? Um, it's always been very exciting to me, um, mainly as a primary care clinician, it's a big challenge to try to keep up to date with, with, with all the information, but um, it's been, it's been fun and exciting realizing that it's actually possible to do that and to, and and to have um, a fair amount of confidence when I make decisions that I've really am operating from a point of of view where I really have a pretty good grasp of what information is out there and feeling comfortable that I'm making the best decisions I can most of the time mm-hmm. and and obviously the excitement of being able to share that with others. So so Dave, you know you and you know as, as well as anyone else healthcare is there's a lot going on in healthcare a lot of shifts a lot of changes a lot of pressures in terms of cost pressures um uh, you know pressures to demonstrate you know what we're doing is actually making a difference um where you know where does this fit in the scheme of things cuz is this is this just a nice thing is this an academic thing or is this are we talking about you know real dollars and real life and, and death situations here because I, I you know I, I you know I'm begging the question here but one of the things I've learned from you in our conversations and and as I'm you know getting deeper and deeper in the last few years into consumer-based care and value-based care this is real um, I mean we're talking about you know making decisions about people's lives um, doing things that will either benefit them or not benefit them. And, you know, it, it just, you know, I, as I was preparing for this interview, one of the things, um, you know, the questions that came up in my mind as, 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 as I was reading some of your work, uh, and again, you've been doing this, I just want to let folks know, you've been doing this for nearly 25 years. So this is not a new hobby or, or endeavor for you. You are a world expert in this area and have demonstrated that repeatedly with some amazing, uh, results and, and feedback. But, you know, how, how, in the scheme of things, how important is this right now in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, you know, Zev, you and I have talked about this a little bit. I mean, it's, um, I think it's definitely a whole lot more than just cost. You know, can we afford healthcare? I really think um, it's an issue of making sure that patients uh, get the best care they can. Um, uh, you know, one of the biggest issues in medicine today is this whole idea of overuse and, and misuse, but mainly overuse, doing doing things to patients that they don't need to have done and the potential harm that occurs from that. And I see that every day. I, um, things that I see that clinicians are doing that um, not only are they not necessary, but they can actually be harmful to patients. So it is crucial. Um, I think uh, I, I, somebody recently said that we, medicine may have, have evolved now to a point where the average patient is just as likely to be harmed or more likely to be harmed as an interaction with the medical profession as they are to be helped. And so I think we're at a really crucial time now in medicine where we have to make sure we realize that we've, we've gotten into that position and we've got to find a way to get ourselves out of it. So I, I, I can't imagine anything actually that's more crucial than that right now. 
Yeah, I, I mean, again, it would it's it would seem to me I, I would agree with you. It, it's and it's hard to demonstrate that, but but I think we we can. I mean, I was I was speaking with actually I interviewed Dr. Richard Barron, who who's the who's the president CEO of um, of the American Board of Internal Medicine a few weeks ago. And asking him about the importance of staying up to date and evidence based, and and he was saying something, and I forget the exact percentage. I wish I, I could recall, but basically, what we believe as true and as evidence based today, seven years from now, more more than half of that won't even be. It'll be fiction. It'll won't be true. And so that you know, the, we medicine is this sort of field where we're just. It's not so much where we're learning new things. We're learning what we think is true or isn't true. And I, I think for for me working with you, it's that's been one of the most exciting things. And I think and I'm not just speaking for myself, but I see this with other colleagues. I mean, we've been coming to you. I mean, think about this. We accept certain things as true, like I order these tests, or I, I do these tests, or I give these medications, um, and I think I know what I'm doing. But you know, as Glenn Steele, the former CEO of Geisinger, who's a world-renowned surgeon and and researcher, I mean, he he basically, you know, he said, "Look, you know, we're not talking about cookbook medicine. We're talking about." changing medicine. So it's not, you know, seat of the pants medicine, or it's not anecdotal medicine, that it's really evidence-based medicine, uh, based also on, on data and, and, and probability. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the most exciting things, I mean, you know this, right? We come to you all the time now. I mean, how many times a day does a doctor call you up and say, hey, I thought I was supposed to do this, but is that really true? Is that evidence-based? Um, and so it just seems to me that so much of what we do and so much of what practicing physicians do is in fact, um, you know, call it what you will. It's, it's anecdotal. It's, it's doing the best they can, but how do you see, how do you see how physicians, I mean, again, you've been watching this for, for over two decades. How are physicians doing this today and how is what you're going to do make it better? Yeah, I think you hit on it there. Um, think how to say this. Um, I think the the issue is really that we've all of us in medicine have been trained to think uh, what I would say is sort of a pathophysiologic way of reasoning or sort of the biomedical approach. It all goes back to you know when Abraham Flexner um, you know decided which you know did the report for for Congress and for the Carnegie Foundation which medical schools in his feeling were training clinicians appropriately and which ones were not. And, and he was an engineer and, and the schools that were using the biomedical approach instead of sort of the snake oil approach, those were the schools that got the funding. And, and we still, you and I and the rest of us have come from that, from that genre. And um, you mentioned probability thinking, um, you know, all the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and all the stuff that they've done really shows how how humans don't, we don't do a very good job with probability thinking, but we really need to get better at it. Um, in the 1950s and the 1980s, you know, that's when randomized controlled trials came out, when systematic reviews came out. And and um, we we really don't use that stuff in medicine as much as we should. Uh, just give you an example that I've been, you and I've talked about this, I've been dealing with recently, has been the whole idea of um, uh, checking people's vitamin D levels and giving them vitamin D. You know, we we all taught in medical school that vitamin D is important for bone mineralization. It's there's lots of observational data that shows that people with low vitamin D levels are more likely to have diabetes and all kinds of other problems. But all the randomized trials that we've seen have not really shown a benefit to vitamin D. Uh, there was even recently. Uh, systematic review published in JAMA where they looked at um, all 33 trials that have, have evaluated whether vitamin D helps prevent fractures. And one of the pretty remarkable findings was that it looks like vitamin D in women between the ages of 50 and 65 may actually cause them to be more likely to have a fracture. And the problem with information like that is, is it's really hard for clinicians to accept that. You know, it doesn't make sense with the pathophysiologic modeling. It doesn't make sense with the observational data. And and we are taught to, even without consciously thinking it, we tend to uh, put preference on that type of thinking in our decision making. And as a result, it takes an incredible long time to change clinical practice. So even though we're staring in the face, the idea that giving vitamin D is, is likely to be harmful, 
it will take years before clinicians can stop doing that. And there, you know, there's multiple other examples of that. And again, it's this idea that we, you know, one of the most strongest things we've been saying recently is we have to completely change the way that we educate new doctors. We have to change the way that we think ourselves. You know, it's always tough for the teachers to teach the mm-hmm. students things that the teachers themselves can't even do. But, but it, it's, it takes a, an educational revolution to do that, and we've got to do it. We have to switch away from the pathophysiologic reasoning and switch over to a probability-based uh, decision model. Um, you know, clinicians will say, you know, what is this evidence-based medicine? We've always used evidence. Yeah, but the way we've used evidence has not been the way that we should be using it. Um, and that's really the basic change that we're, that we're trying to get across. And, and you know, I, I just want to punctuate what you just said, because I, I've had the same conversation. Quite honestly, it's taking me a few months to really understand what you're saying and, and even some of the research I've done to prepare for this, you know, talk with you. But this is a break. This is a departure. You talked about the Flexner. Now, just so folks who are not familiar, Flexner did his, published his report in 1910. So, and what he did was he introduced biomedical science and reasoning and the scientific method into medicine. And that's been pretty much the course we've been on. And it wasn't, as you pointed out, until the 70s or 80s that we really started doing some major, you know, statistically sound research, uh, clinical research trials. And so that's relatively new, but, but this is different. What you're saying is that we have to start thinking about this. And I think it's a major reframe. Uh, I, 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 I don't think it's more of the same or even better. I think it's actually quite different. It's using probability, probability and, and statistical science to really help us make decisions. And, and that is different than what we've done before. And that's what you've been working on for quite some time to introduce into the uh, decision-making process in, in healthcare. So I, I really, I really applaud you for it. Um, it is, it is, and you've shared this with me, and I know you talk about this. It is very, very akin to the story we've seen in, um, what's called uh, Moneyball, right? And so, um, do you want to, do you want to tell that story? Cause it's, it's, it's very much that, that shift, that reframe that happened in, in, in now in sports, starting with baseball, but now it's actually spread to, you know, to retail shops. I mean, Walmart, Target, Amazon, everyone's using this probabilistic thinking, uh, except for healthcare. <laughs> and so do you, do you want to show this story? Yeah, that's, you know, it's funny. We always, movies seem to make such a difference in our culture, but Moneyball is actually one that uh, my colleague Alan and I uh, re- refer to a lot. It's the story of Billy Bean and the Oakland A's back in, it was year 2002, and uh, Billy Bean was trying to figure out a way to, to trade and get the best ball players for his team and so that the Oakland A's could win the pennant and go to the World Series and and the old traditional in the movie, there's a great scene that uh, where the the uh, uh, scouts are getting together and they're talking about various players and whether they can hit the curveball or not. And one guy says, you know, uh, such and such a player, he, he's got an ugly girlfriend. And the other guy say, what does an ugly girlfriend have to do with it? And the first guy says, uh, ugly girlfriend means no confidence. And so they go, okay, so let's not draft that guy. And there's you know you see Billy Beans look on his face like, oh my gosh. You know, this is how we're deciding who are the best ball players. There's got to be a better way to do this. And so the movie evolves. Billy Bean ends up meeting this guy that's uh, trained in sabermetrics and using probability theory and looking at uh, an individual player's statistics and mainly focusing on their on-base percentage. The way you score runs in baseball is you got to get on base. So, you know, we'll preferentially play the players that have the best on-base percentage and it doesn't always look like the best players according to the traditional model, but Billy Bean goes with the probability model and the Oakland A's start winning. They win 20 games in a row. Uh, the Boston Red Sox start using the same methodology. They go on and win the World Series a couple times. You know, now all the teams in baseball use probability theory. Football uses it with their combine and, and, um, uh, um, even the law profession uses probability theory now to help them make decisions. But medicine is, we have lag behind. We, we, um, you know, we talk about evidence-based medicine and we don't like to sort of talk about eminence-based medicine, but it's that idea that sort of the longer your white coat is, the more, the more powerful you are because of the more knowledge you have. And, and, um, uh, it, it's not, it won't be an easy change, but we're going to have to do it. And, and, um, um, 
I really feel strongly uh, myself and many others that it's the only way we're going to be able to not only afford care, but to continue to uh, provide quality care. Um, so, yeah, so that, that story is a great one and it helps helps to really make people, I think, understand the idea that probability theory is where we've got to go with this. I, I mean, again, I, I, I'm not aware of any other industry that is lagging as far behind as we are in terms of using this approach. Uh, so it, it's become the way you do business in, in everywhere else uh, because it makes sense and, and it gives you better outcomes. And actually, I, I just want to share this with you because as I was re- reading through your materials and really uh, trying to better understand what you've been working on for, for again, greater than two decades, here's, how I, I, here's what I like about your approach. First of all, clearly taking this more probabilistic uh, approach to decision making is is uh, clearly the way to go. Um, but what I also like about it is that it's very very patient centered or consumer centered. You continuously teach me and talk about the fact that don't worry about the intermediate process. We we we're so focused, and for those people who aren't in the quality or quality improvement, which I assume is most of the listeners. Um, in, in healthcare, we have been so focused on process outcomes, uh, process metrics, so intermediate metrics. Uh, for instance, are we controlling the sugar or uh, blood pressure? These are these are not outcomes metrics. And your approach really is the question you keep on reminding us of is: Does this actually make a difference in terms of the health and life of the person or the patient? Where you know, not the number. Don't treat the number. Treat the person. And I that's an, and I'll, I'll invite you to come back and say something about that. But that's the second thing I really like about your approach. The third thing is that it is focused on probably what is one of the most critical problems in healthcare today, which is the just tremendous um, unnecessary utilization and cost. We are doing way more than we should be doing. And while, you know, people may not understand this, when you do things, you actually can introduce harm to patients. And we know that anyone who's practiced medicine for any amount of time knows that the more unnecessary testing you do and unnecessary treatment, you actually harm the patient. And of course, you waste tremendous amounts of money. And we know that overutilization contributes to literally one out of every three dollars we spend on healthcare is waste. We could actually cut it out and healthcare would be improved in terms of safety and quality and experience. So that's another part that I really like about your approach. And finally, I do actually think this is a tremendous benefit to physicians and other providers to, to give them not a cookbook, but a way of, you know, doctors make decisions literally every minute, um, serious decisions about testing and 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 treatments and some of them are are very very serious treatments and costly treatments and and painful treatments why not have the best that science uh, can offer and 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 analysis can offer so i think this is a boon for for providers in terms of really providing some some standardized support so so that's c- kind of how i've broken down the benefits to what you're doing do you, do you want to s- speak to any of those Zev, early on um sort of the frame that alan and I use was this thing we called the information mastery usefulness equation. So the usefulness of information is equal to how relevant the information is, how valid it is, and then inversely proportional, how much work it takes to get that information. So that, you know, we know that clinicians, when they're taking care of patients, will probably, if they believe the information is going to take them longer than 30 to 40, maybe a minute at the most, they're, and they're busy, they're just not going to have time to find that. So so we have to make sure the information is very timely and available to them. Uh, validity is, you know, how reliable is this information? This validity is probably the piece where the, the probability theory falls in the most with uh, sort of the least likely to be uh, the truth being like a single case series and the most likely to represent the truth being a systematic review of multiple randomized controlled trials. Um, but relevance has always been the key piece that we focused on, and you bring that up, this idea of patient-oriented. Uh, we've always sort of said that mm-hmm. what's relevant is an outcome that patients care about, and they really only care about two things. Am I going to live longer or am I going to live better? Um, they don't really care about what their vitamin D levels are. We make them think it's important, but they care about whether taking this medicine is going to make them um, be more likely to have fractures, fractures or less likely, hopefully, or um, that they're going to live longer. And so uh, um, physicians will, will, will do more to try to lower somebody's blood sugar or lower their vitamin D or raise their vitamin D levels than they will necessarily to make sure that what they're doing is actually beneficial. And uh, that's the piece we've always been trying to remind people we've got to do. We, we never know 
rarely do we know the truth with absolute certainty. It's always really more a matter of probability, but we make it more likely that we're going to do good than harm by Mm -hmm. focusing on those patient-oriented outcomes and then looking for the best evidence that we can. And that's where the problem with overuse comes in is is we don't always look at uh, the patient-oriented outcomes and and we don't always take into account the probability of the truth. And, mm-hmm. um, and and part of it also is making sure that that information, again, as I said, is there. And that requires us to uh, uh, make sure that that there are what we call specially specific tools available uh, to bring that information as close as we can to the point of care. Do, do you have another example of... Um, this idea of a of a, a, a an outcome that's important to patients versus what we look at. Um, uh, the vitamin D one is one that just it, it it strikes home for me because I literally went to see a doctor a few months ago, super smart, uh, capable subspecialist, and his his recommendation to me was to take vitamin D. And I asked him uh, why, um, and uh, he said, well, you know, everyone's recommending it. The cardiologists recommend it. The, you know, uh, orthopedists recommend it. The, I, I was like, so I went out and bought vitamin D, and I, mean, I took his word for it. But clearly, uh, after talking to you, I, I stopped taking it. Um, but other examples, whether it's in diabetes or hypertension, where, you know, we accept something as real, but it's actually treating a number as opposed to a patient. I mean, gosh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many, Zev, it's hard to... You just focus on one. I just thinking you brought up hypertension. I mean, there's there was a drug that came out a couple of years ago that uh, was like a fifth or sixth class for how to lower blood pressure, and it and it lowers blood pressure. But when um, so it was out, people, lots of patients took it. But when they finally got evidence from randomized trials, it showed that it lowered blood pressure, but it made people more likely to have a stroke. Um, it doesn't make sense with our pathophysiologic reasoning that we have, but there's obviously some other mechanism that occurs that this drug does that even though it lowers blood pressure, it makes people more likely to have a stroke. I mean, we've seen, seen the same thing with drugs like like niacin. I mean, lots of people have taken niacin to lower their cholesterol, and there's been a couple randomized trials recently that shows that it's associated with a higher risk of stroke. Um, so people that are out there taking that medicine are going to say, whoa, I don't want that. I don't know. Remember years ago, not that, not that long ago, there were ads on TV about uh, people taking erythropoietin to um, when they were on cancer chemotherapy to uh, uh, improve their red blood cell production and make them less anemic and uh, made the numbers better. People were less anemic, but turns out compared to placebo, patients who took erythropoietin were more likely to die sooner. Wow. Um, so, so again, it's uh, mechanism isn't always right. What's important is the outcome. And we have to be constantly alert for those. And it's remarkable how often that comes up. Um, uh, the one that's probably the, the biggest example that's kind of frightening is, um, uh, in, I did this when I was a resident. We used to give uh, a drug called uh, lidocaine. Now we use it to um, numb up um, people's skin when they're going to have surgery. But we used to give that drug intravenously to people having heart attacks because they were having heart arrhythmias, and when you gave it to them, it made the arrhythmia go away. We thought this was great. Um, but when they finally did a huge randomized trial, it turned out the increased mortality by compared to placebo by about 10%, um, which meant about every 10th or 11th person we gave it to, um, they would have made it out of the hospital if we'd given a placebo instead. Somebody did a mathematical analysis for just the United States and said, if you figure out how many people died taking that medicine and, and otherwise had been on placebo, the number of names would be, they made a memorial to it, it would be four times the size of the Vietnam War Memorial. Um, if you've ever been to Washington and seen that memorial and how many names are there, imagine it four times as big. That's how many people have been harmed by just our misapplication of just one drug. Hmm. You know, Dave, again, as I, as I, I mean, that's where I think, um, I get really excited about working with you and deploying, um, you know, your, your teachings to other physicians and making it sort of standardized within, uh, within a larger healthcare system. It, it, you know, I, I, but, but, you know, as I'm listening to you again, once again, you know, my question is how do we, how do we, um, get this out there? I mean, this is, people are literally being harmed every single day 
and again, it's, it's, it's no one's fault. I mean, people are trying to do their best. We just don't have the support systems in place. I mean, uh, you, you know, this, again, every other industry, you know, you send a pilot up in the air and you don't give them the right support systems. Um, they're going to get into trouble and their passengers are going to get into trouble. Um, so you figure out how to make the system work to support the pilot. And so I think what you're doing is very, very similar here. You're saying we need to really revolutionize clinical decision-making to support physicians, because this is just beyond any individual's ability uh, to keep up with all this information, to have it at their, as you say, you, you can't, you can't, for every decision you make, you can't take three, five, 10 minutes to make a decision. You'll, you'll, you won't be able to see, you know, more than a, you know, two or three or five patients a day. Um, and so this is really, really of critical necessity, both from a safety quality perspective, from a life-saving perspective. And without any question, um, you know, the critical issue today is costs in healthcare from a cost perspective. So, you have you have something that you've created uh, some online programs. How, t- tell me, you know, about your program. Uh, t- tell me how you've, you know, how how would people avail themselves? How do you get this out there? Um, so, Zev, so my colleague Alan and I have been struggling with this for a long time. We we um, we've been giving workshops, as you mentioned earlier, pretty much all around the world. Um, I teach. At the School of Public Health in, in Hong Kong um, University, uh, a course there on clinical decision making. We've taught in Saudi Arabia, we've taught in uh, Europe, Denmark, uh, Israel. We've really been uh, Canada, really been around the world. We've had less um, of an interest in it, in really from the United States, mainly because I think our healthcare system has focused on uh, still to still more so now than less on the, sort of the fee for service model. Um, and we only recently begun to move in the direction where we can't pay attention just to, to quality and profit, but we have to actually pay attention to the overall costs. And so I think that's part of the the, the, the interest that's occurring um, in a larger amount. But even in the countries where um, they, they have universal health care and they pay attention to costs, even those countries can't afford to keep up with the, with the rising costs of, of medicine. So everybody's interested in how can we uh, make it less costly but still not sacrifice uh, quality at the same time? And, again, it always keeps coming back to that issue of overuse. How can we identify the things that we're doing that don't need to be done? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned, you, you know, I've talked about this. We have this system that we do that's called the POMES where, where um, we have a team of about five of us that look at 135 journals a month, and we look for what we call patient-oriented evidence that matters. And those are studies that have outcomes that patients would care about, living longer, living better. They're um, studies that are common to, we do it for primary care, so they're, they're things that are important for primary care. And then they matter because if the information is true, um, and we only know that by probability theory, but if it's as close as we can to the truth, we believe it's true, and, and it's something a clinician's not doing, then they have to change their behavior because otherwise the patients are going to benefit from it. So these are, you know, like I mentioned, that study about vitamin D, if it's really true that it makes people more likely have fractures, and it looks to me like it is true, um, then, then we got to stop doing it right away because, you know, our, our uh, Hippocratic Oath, primum non nocere, first to do no harm and uh, to continue to do something that's been shown to be harmful, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously we can't keep doing that. So the, so the poems are part of the process, um, and we, we go through the journals. We identify maybe 10, 15, 20 of those each month, um, and we um, send them out to clinicians uh, one a day in their email. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I mean, I get them myself, and it makes me very confident knowing that I, there's something that's important in Lancet or the British Medical Journal. I'm aware of that. You know, there's no clinician, as you, as you mentioned, that can read British Medical Journal every week, Lancet every week, Journal of the American Medical Association every week, New England Journal of Medicine every week, uh, all their specialty journals. And then they have to read the articles on how to read the articles, sort of the clinical epidemiology articles. Nobody can do that. But there are teams of people that can do that, um, and they can do it for everybody else. And one of the crucial pieces that just makes us go crazy is this idea that we have these information sources avail- available to clinicians, uh, and it's, a, it's to get them to, to use them and realize that they're there. Uh, when I show it to people when I'm in Hong Kong and I show it there, 
Um, they're astounded that they don't know about this. And obviously, they all want to sign up for it right away. How, how, Dave, how does, how does um, you know, your patient-oriented evidence that matters, these poems, um, how would a physician or a, a hospital system or a provider group, how would they access this? Is it they just look it up on a website or? Yes, yeah, so like the poems are, um, they're distributed by this company called John Wiley. And somebody just asked me about this yesterday. I mean, it's $85 for one clinician for an entire year. Um, it costs about half of what it costs to subscribe to one journal. And it basically sets you in a position where um, you, um, you, you're not going to, you're not going to miss anything. Um, mm-hmm. um, I mentioned to you, we talked about this a little while ago, um, an article came out that somebody studied every article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the first 10 years of this decade. And mm-hmm. there were about 400 studies that questioned whether what we were doing in medicine, what we call the standard of care, whether that was the right thing or not. And it turned out the standard of care was wrong, as you said earlier, about half of the time. Um, wow. So things that we thought we were doing in the first decade of this century, half of the things that we tested were wrong. Um, but but it's and that's just in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's not in, mm-hmm. in J. It's not in Lancet. It's not in JAMA. It's not in all those other journals. And so all that's incredibly important information that that clinicians need right away. That their patients need their clinicians to know right away. Gosh, I want to know when I go see a doctor. I want to know that he or she um, if there's something that's going to change what's going to make a difference for me. I don't want it to be two or three years before they find out. I want them to know right away, right then and there. Um, and, and those systems do exist. And that's a big part of it is getting that out there. You also have a, um, you recorded an online program, right? And, and how is that available? Yeah. Okay. So, yes, yeah, so we, so this course that I mentioned, we teach, we've taught it all over the world. We, we've given workshops once or twice a year in the United States. Um, and uh, a few years ago, the ACGME, they oversee sort of residency training. They, they were aware of the course and, and the things that we do. And they, they said, you know, this is really great stuff and you really need to get this out. We, we really believe that every single medical student, every resident, every doctor in, in, in America needs this stuff and needs to uh, be aware of it and to use this stuff. So, so they asked us to do, they said, you guys can't go all over the place and keep talking to everybody. So you, can you put together an online course? So, but the whole, the whole, process took us about two and a half years to do that Mm. and um, we do have it finished we're excited about it there's about five or six medical schools in the united states that are using it now Mm. Um, we just got a school uh, up in canada that signed up and they're going to start using it for their medical students some of the feedback we've got is great i had a a dean of one of the medical schools call me uh, recently and said that our course was the number one favorite course that the medical students were were taking and they Mm. They were like, this is really important stuff. Even the medical students realized it, mm-hmm. um, that they, they are recognizing they have to learn to make decisions, again, using this probability approach. And, and they're all for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're excited about it. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think important change is not change that happens overnight. It takes a while. Um, and people have to think about it. And if you, if you change too fast, then... Then you, then you change away from it too fast. So I think this, this change is going to take some time. But when people do look at it, they, they get more what we call kind of a transformational learning where it just isn't, they just, they don't just learn something new. They learn something that transforms their entire life, um, the entire way they think about things. And, um, that's a big change and it's an exciting change. So, so Dave, uh- how, if I were interested or someone else were interested in bringing this to our system, our provider group or hospital system, your online program, uh, is there a website or how do we access that? Um, yeah, so we're still working on that. We, um, we do have a website. It's called uh, clinicalinformationsciences.com. We've been working with the American Board of Medical Specialties, and they've looked at it. They're, they're very interested in it. We're trying to uh, set it up so that it uh, interacts with the hub uh, we keep um, the, the goal has been to make it so that any any clinician in the U.S. can actually uh, access it through their maintenance of certification process. Um, of course, it takes maybe about um, probably about eight hours. Um, there'll be obviously CME that goes along with that, uh, but also uh, Part Four maintenance of certification credits. 
Um, and um, again, whenever you do something like this, it's also important to study it, make sure that it actually accomplishes what you hope that it does. Um, so we're working here. Atrium Health has been great. Uh, this, you know, working with some of the people here that are uh, very interested in not only rolling this out, but also looking to see whether it's actually going to uh, make a difference and improve care and reduce costs. So, there, so there's a lot going on with this, really, from a lot of different angles. Now, but you've already, uh, you know, you, again, you spent years uh, working with large institutions. There was one in particular, um, I think it was Scott and White Memorial Hospital System in Temple, Texas, uh, and they have uh, really achieved some profound uh positive outcomes in terms of patient care quality, as well as uh, reducing unnecessary costs of care. You, you and your and your partner uh, spent some time educating them in this model. And in part, as a result of that, they, they really became quite recognized for their work. Do you want to say a word about that? Yeah, that was a, that was a great opportunity. I mean, they had back in the early 2000s, a gentleman uh, named Don Cawthon, who's a, a physician, he was running the organization and he very um, proactive thinking and recognized way back then that, you know, we were going to have to not only take care of the people that we see in front of us, but the unseen, sort of the whole idea of true population health. And he knew in order to do that, we were going to have to pay attention to costs. And and uh, he had Alan, uh, Dr. Shaughnessy and I come in there over a two-year period. We flew to Temple, Texas seven times and trained, uh, did a two or three-day workshop for their entire medical staff. And uh, they, they really used it to change the culture of the whole organization. And, and two or three years later, Consumers Report uh, ranked them the best hospital in America. They gave them the highest quality score with the, with the best cost score. And they, they beat out every academic center, every other medical center in the whole United States. And from a viewpoint of a patient, if you want to go to a, a medical center that's going to give you the best quality for, for the, uh, you know, for the best cost. But number one, still the best quality was, it wasn't like they had less quality. It was, they had the best quality, but they also had the best cost. And that was exciting for us to see that. And, and we are just, you know, so excited to have the opportunity to demonstrate that again. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, well, not I'm hoping, I, I think you, I think we have to, I just, I, I just think this is so critically important. I mean, we do so much in healthcare to try to reduce costs, and a lot of it is administrative burden, et cetera. But what you're talking about is really, you know, where the rubber hits the road. This is about how we are actually treating and taking care of people clinically. I mean, this is it, um, you know, and so um, I can't think of anything that is more important to patients, their families, uh, to physicians and other providers, to healthcare systems, uh, and to, quite honestly, to employers and payers who are, you know, and the, and the federal government that's bearing the burden of this. So I, I, I just, you know, again, I can't, I, it just gets me so frustrated to know that you've been working on this for you know, literally over two decades, and we're still not um, not taking this to heart. Now, just just along those the, that 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 point, um, you you must have run into this is such a different way of thinking, and uh, from the way that we've been trained and quite honestly been doing for decades and decades. Um, you know, again in the Moneyball movie, it was the same thing. You know, they were talking to these. Um, uh, recruiters and they had been, you know, making decisions about um, uh, who to who to pick to play ball, you know, professional ball and baseball, and they had been they were using heuristics, you know, just baking stuff up, you know, again, it's seat of the pants kind of stuff and anecdotal stuff, and it it was quite difficult for Billy Bean to introduce this uh, more you know rigorous approach to making decisions. Um, what's the biggest challenges you found, the resistance you found, because I can't think of anything why anyone would resist this or not, you know, just really go after this. And uh, what, what, what have you, dis- you know, what, what have you experienced? Yeah. Um, so one of the most profound things that we went through was, I won't say too much about this because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but there was a hospital system I worked at um, about two or three hospital systems ago where we were there at a time when um the evidence was coming out pretty clearly that when people were having a heart attack, um, we thought it was a good thing to put this drug called Procardia underneath their tongue, and it would dilate their uh, coronary arteries. And, and uh, you know, if you got a blockage one place, it would dilate the other core, what they call collateral arteries. So everybody was 
people come into the emergency room and they're having a heart attack and they would quick hurry up and put one of those uh, things underneath their tongue. And uh, we saw the evidence coming out. I remember seeing a meta-analysis that was in uh, uh, a journal that said, again, that, that it was increasing mortality uh, by about 10%, again, compared to placebo. So every 10th person we were doing that to, we were killing them. And uh, I remember this crucial moment where I was showing that study to the, uh, the, the cardiologist, the heart specialist in that hospital system. And um, they got angry with me. And they, they, I remember they called, me, uh, they called me the meta-analysis guy. And um, they said, you know, we don't believe this. And I, and I said, well, um, I do and, and we do. And so we did something that was pretty remarkable. We, we told the emergency room doctors at any time uh, any of the patients that we take care of in our group come in, uh, don't consult cardiology. Uh, we're going to take care of them. Uh, if we need them to come in and do an intervention, we will, but we don't want them involved in care of our patients because they're going to harm them. And uh, it was a pretty, pretty unique situation where a group of uh, primary care clinicians are telling the specialists, I'm sorry, you guys are behind on the evidence. You're still hurting our patients. We're, we're not going to let you do that. They're yeah, we have a higher responsibility to our patients than we do to making you guys, um, you know, feel like you're know what you're doing. And sure enough, it wasn't. It was six months or a year before uh, they finally got wind of the information and they sort of quietly switched over to it. Um, but for a year there, we had to protect our patients, wow. and they, uh, we've had multiple other examples of that. But that's probably the one that's the most dramatic that comes to my mind. It's always been a challenge when you when you're aware of information that puts you not not just ahead of the curve, but sometimes so far ahead of the curve that you're around the corner and nobody even sees it. Um, and uh, that's always a, a little bit of an uncomfortable position yeah. to be in. I just, just, uh, I just want to rec- recognize your, your courage in doing that. That takes, that takes a lot uh, of courage to stand up in the face of, you know, specialty experts, especially people who you work with, you know, in your institution and sort of do what you believe is the right thing. So, uh, so you, you deserve a lot of recognition and credit for doing that. I, I just want to thank you for that uh, and all the work you're doing. Where where do you see this field going, this evidence-based, probabilistic-based decision-making model? What's what's the next three to five years bring? Well, I, I'm excited more now, Zeb, than I've been in a long time. I mean, um, John Franco recruited me down here to Charlotte Atrium Health. Um, this is Atrium Health is the second largest healthcare system in the United States, second to the, the VA hospital system. And uh, the, I've been here for a little over six months, and I really sense that this whole institution is um, not only are they do they care about you know providing the highest quality care, but they're really recognizing the importance of, of costs. And I, they're also recognizing that this whole idea that reducing variability is not necessarily a good thing if it causes overuse to continue. So, so they're really, their theme of, of, of the reform moving forwards for where I am is all about uh, working together to uh, minimize and eliminate overuse. And I, I, that's very exciting. And they, they, they are aware of the work I'm doing. They, they're aware of the course that we teach. We're, we're in the process of working now with uh, many of the leaders here. To, to roll that out, um, as I mentioned, to study it, but both through the academic channels, they have medical students and residents here, but also through uh, the affiliate networks with the clinicians out in the, out in the communities. And, and uh, uh, there's, a, there's a great excitement and enthusiasm about it. I think if we can demonstrate in a big institution like this that it, that it really makes a difference, um, I can see the rest of the country and really the rest of the world uh, paying attention. I know, Zeb, you and I talk about this. I know you've got the same excitement that I do with this. And um, there's a there's a shared enthusiasm and excitement. And when you have that, um, um, that's a big, important thing. I read, I just read in a book yesterday, uh, again, it was about Daniel Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky, and it said the greatest things that change the world are, are the ones that that people get excited about and they find, they find humor in it. And... Um, I think that that's uh, that's a big part of where we are with this is we <clears throat> we do um, find a lot of <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> humor in it in terms of um, um, some of the things that it makes us think about and do and and find and and uh, 
um, I get up every morning now excited about where where things are going and and um, so I hope that answers your question but yeah. but I think in the next three to five years we really are going to see the tipping point where where we're moving in this direction getting getting the whole system to start to adopt this more probability based population based outcomes based uh, approach to making decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the right thing for patients. I, I, I think what you're saying makes sense that, you know, it's one to get it, you know, out there and deployed in a, in a large system. And, and also, I think as you were alluding to, some way to study it, to demonstrate what you did at Scott and White and, and other places you worked at, that this really does change the system and, uh, you know, patient experience and care and outcomes for and cost for the better. Um, so that probably is the proximal work. I, you know, I've also, I, I've got to think as, you know, um, as we're talking and I've been, you know, kind of prepping to talk to you, the whole world of artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, if we could couple or if you could couple what you've been doing with that, I, I think there's some something there. Um, you know, if you think about the number of decisions, I was just kind of doing this thought experiment last night as I was uh, reading through some of your materials. You know, I don't know how many decisions are made a day in the United States alone, uh, much less across the world, that doctors and other providers make on patients, whether it's ordering tests or uh, doing treatments. But God knows how many millions of decisions are literally made every single day, if not, you know, tens of millions of decisions. And if somehow those could be automatically recorded and fed into a machine learning uh, device, I suspect, you know, along the lines of specific conditions and whatnot, there would be tremendous, um, it's almost kind of like doing what you're doing on a meta level. But um, have you thought about that? Is that something that's on the radar? Or is it a little bit too far out right now? Yeah, I mean, that that's a good question. Zeb. I mean, that does come up fairly often. I think that's one of the things that scares clinicians about <clears throat> this whole uh, evidence-informed decision-making. Are they going to be replaced by a computer um, that can make the decisions as well or better than them. The computer doesn't, computer can read BMJ every week and Lancet every week and whatever. Um, but I think the key issue with that is this sort of idea that it's probability-based. And whenever you have probability, there's always uncertainty. And the importance of the uncertainty is this <clears throat> whole field sort of of shared decision-making with patients. Um, uh, Daniel Werneman in his book, uh, Information Anxiety, talks about we have information, we, we have data, uh, then we ana analyze data. We've got information. We put together the best information. We have knowledge. Uh, we got the best knowledge. Um, that's really probably what the computer systems can do is assemble the best knowledge. But wisdom is the individual application of the best knowledge. And that's the part that the machine won't do. And that's the part with the shared decision making with the patient. And that's the part that the approach of the importance of the probability based thinking, you know, sitting down with the patient and saying, look, you know, here's the best evidence. There's some uncertainty here. You know, where does this work for you in terms of what's important to you in your life? Hmm. Um, so I do think that the computer is going to be incredibly important, the computer decision support with the knowledge piece. But I also don't think clinicians uh, need to worry that it's going to, you know, put them out of a job tomorrow. I, You know what? I can't even imagine that to be the case. I, I think it's like so many things that we have today. They are supports and um, technology is an enabler. It, it's, it really, you know, at least in this realm, in terms of the cognitive um, domain, um, you know, and I'm so glad. Uh, Dave, I'm so, so glad that you brought up this issue of shared decision making and, and patient preference because so much of this can, we could get so funneled into what's the right thing from a clinical outcomes perspective. But, you know, then again, as, a, as an individual patient, the patient may or may not consider something to be important or, or has different, you know, places different value on, on, on something. And so I think that's a part that's missing in so much of what we do. And I'm really, really glad that you're, you, you're thinking about it. Uh, it seems to me that that is a part that um, technology can help us with as well is to ferret out what exactly you know, do people consider important and, um, and include that in the decision-making process. So, um, you know, uh, we don't do enough of that. I think we're really, you know, kind of on the verge of doing that. There are some organizations that, that, 
have spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. The ICOM, the uh, International Center for Health Outcomes Measurement uh, out of uh, the Harvard Business School, they really focus a lot uh, looking at condition-specific areas and saying, you know, here, you know, we've talked to patients, we've polled patients, we've done tremendous amounts of research from a patient perspective. Here's what patients think is important versus what they don't think is important. And, um, uh, you know, one area that I'm dealing with right now, a little bit of a side, is the whole post-acute care space. In fact, uh, uh, just a post did a podcast on that um, with Josh Luke, who's an expert in this area. And, you know, we send people to nursing homes uh, because we, we think it's safer. Uh, but, you know, when you talk to patients, not, over 97% of people do not want to go to a nursing home. And yet you look at the Medicare population, you're seeing uh, literally one out of every five people being discharged from a hospital going to a nursing home or some other post-acute care facility where they don't want to go. And quite honestly, the vast majority don't need to go. And so um, so I think this area, it, it took us a while to get to, this, to that point, but I just can't underscore that. I have to constantly remind myself. And so so really thank you uh, for mentioning it. Is there, is there any other point you want to make about that patient-centered stuff? No, I mean, I just, I, I, I think we, you sort of said at the beginning sometimes that we, we do this often, we don't even realize the stuff that we don't say, but um, I do want to, emphasize that incredibly important that the probability means involving pe- patients themselves with the uncertainty. I, uh, I've had many patients come to me uh, when I'm in my, when I'm, I still see patients, but I had many of them come to me where they've said, hey, you know, I've heard you're a doctor that says that I don't absolutely have to have a mammogram or I don't have to have a PSA test or I don't have to take metformin when my hemoglobin A1C is only six and a half. And and they've been told by their clinicians that they have to, and they've actually, the clinicians have made them feel guilty um, for considering not doing this. Like, what's wrong with you? Why won't you do this? And and I'd be able to sit with them and say, hey, look, you know, I'm not saying your clinician is a bad person, but, you know, here is the evidence, and there is some uncertainty here. And, and uh, you know, it is a decision that you can make. You don't have to do this. And and there's just this amazing amount of, um, of uh, uh, feeling that the patient has that, oh, my gosh, thank you. Um, you, you've taken into account how I feel about this, and and I'm smart enough. I've looked at this. I can see that it's not that obvious, and it's just so nice to have a clinician that that's willing to to, to discuss that and, and say that with me. So, um, you know, that's that's. I guess I can't just say I can't say that enough. Yeah. Yeah. So so let me uh, thank you for saying that. Um, again, can't can't say it enough. And I I you know I, you and I will definitely continue talking about this and working on the, that, that patient shared decision-making uh, part of it as well. I want to shift gears with you in the last few minutes. Um, and, and again, thank you for, for staying in here so well. Um, so I want to ask you, uh, get a little bit more personal with you, because uh, I, I, just, I just find the arc of your career and what you've done to be so... Um, Again, so the commitment, the integrity, the, the courage, it's, 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 it's so inspiring. And I want to, I want to see if we could learn from you. Um, you, you know, in our correspondence leading up to this interview, you wrote, um, uh, in response to a question I asked you, um, this is you writing, uh, if I may share it. You wrote, when I finished my residency, I planned to be a family doctor in a small town somewhere on the shore of one of the Great Lakes. I never strove to be a teacher, a professor, a published scholar, or international speaker slash consultant. Small moments that seemed almost inconsequential opened huge doors for me. In a moment of needing to break an awkward silence, my entire life course changed. What what moment was that that changed your life course? <laughs> That's funny. So um, I remember what, I was very young. I was uh, um, I just... I, I originally, I went to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I don't know. There's the, people may have heard of Mackinac Island. It's an island up there, uh, and I was the doctor up there. And it was the winter time, and uh, people would walk across the ice to come and see me. And they would get lost in the snow, so they would line the the way with their Christmas trees, so they made sure that they could find the shore. And so I was the doctor up there. It was a pretty exciting year, but it was also incredibly grueling. And and uh, so I ended up moving back to my hometown, Grand Rapids, Michigan. I joined a group that um, did teaching with the residents. And I was like, wow, I'd only been out of residency for a year. And I thought, I certainly don't have anything worthwhile to teach residents. But we, one of the first days or weeks I was there, we were having a faculty meeting. And 
residency director said, uh, you know, we have to have somebody involved in research or we're not going to stay accredited. And there were about 20 people in the room and he said, who, who's got um, some experience in research? And there was this incredible awkward science, a silence. And finally I said, uh, well, when I was a, when I was a resident, I was involved in a research project. And the guy pointed at me and said, great, you're our new research director. And uh, so at that moment, uh, my life changed. He sent me, he sent me to McMaster University uh, up in, up in Canada. I worked with David Sackett and his early group and got all involved in, at that time it was called critical appraisal of the literature and I got excited about it. It changed over. It became called evidence-based medicine. I met Alan Shaughnessy. Uh, one thing led to another and, uh, um, it's just remarkable how my career completely shifted from where I thought it was ever going to be. Um, and I, you know, I believe very strongly that important things don't come from people. Uh, they come from the universe and they pass through people. And I've always felt that this was incredibly important. And um, so I never would want to take um, responsibility for thinking of it. I think it's, it's one of those things that uh, the universe says, hey, you guys need to see this one. And, and I feel very fortunate that myself and my colleagues have had the opportunity to be sort of the, the conduit for this stuff. Um, but it is, you're right. It's look, you don't look for something, it finds you. And um, I've always said that to, to, to students and residents that I've mentored, don't try to be uh, uh, something special. The specialness will find you. That's, that's really, thank you for sharing that. What are you most proud of in your work? And you've, you, you have so much to be proud of. That's a good question. I guess, um, I guess really just the fact that, that we haven't given up, um, that it's been, you know, we've gone through some really tough times and a lot of time where it, it's, you, you feel like, gosh, this could make such a difference. Why can't I get other people to pay attention to this? And I'm sure there have been times where I've been too, um, too much of a, a zealot and turn people off. Um, but I guess the most pride is, is not giving up and hanging in there um, and, um, you know, believing that it's going to make a difference. And even if, even if I'm not around to see it, I still believe it's going to make a difference and that I was part of that. And, and uh, I'll always be, be proud of that, um, regardless of, of the amount of recognition that it brings um, to myself. You you uh, shared with me a story um, about a colleague of yours, Marissa Levine, who's the current commissioner of health for the state of Virginia. Do you want to share that in terms of what she she told yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So Marissa and I go way back. We're residents together, and um, you know she's just this incredible person. I mean, she's she goes she's I I, I admire her so much, and she's uh, she's the commissioner of health for the whole state of Virginia, and she started and uh, uh, helped uh, push through all the opioid legislation. And most of the, you know, many of the states in the United States now have followed the work that Marissa started. And, and uh, we get together pretty regularly. And one time we were having dinner together and she said, you know, Dave, you changed my entire career. And I looked at her and said, what do you mean? And she said, you taught me that it was okay to question things. And, and I thought she was kind of kidding, but, but she was really serious. She said, you know, because of working with you, I've always felt like it was all right to question what whatever's being done. And that changed everything that I did. And I thought, wow, um, if that that one person feels that one way, then, then it's all been worth it. Um, but I can't think of any, I, you know, that just made such a difference to me realizing that she was she was able to say that to me. Yeah, I well, my hope, uh, and I'm really glad you shared that. And it's God, you got to feel so good about that. Um, my my hope is that um, as you get your work out there more, and um, I, I hope this uh, uh, sharing this uh, this conversation we're having with others will also get the word out there that uh, you'll inspire more people to really ask uh, important questions and uh, look for better solutions to and better ways of uh, taking care of people. Um, so, last last question I think here is. Um, what, what was the best piece of advice you were ever given? And I, I ask this question of all my guests because I'm really interested in, in learning from your experience. Yeah, Zeb, that's a, a good one. I, you know, that, that same um, 
I don't, it wasn't that same faculty meeting, but it was, it was like the first, my first day when I joined that group many, many years ago in Grand Rapids, I sat down with Chuck Morrill, who was the residency director, and he, he looked across his desk at me and he smiled and he didn't say anything, but he pulled out his prescription pad. Back then, you know, we had the paper prescription pads and he, and he wrote on it, um, and he handed it to me. I looked at it and the prescriptions said, say no. And then he signed it, he dated it, and he put uh, refills uh, PRN as needed. And he was basically saying to me, I'm going to give you permission now for the rest of your career that it's okay to say no. And at the time, it seemed a little funny, but I saved that prescription and I looked at it hundreds of times. And I think the hardest thing for anybody as they go through their career is to, to be able to say no. Because if you say yes all the time, you're going to be so mired up in so many things that you won't really ever be able to focus on things. So the most valuable piece of information I got was that it was okay. And somebody that I really respected and saw as a great leader and a person who really accomplished a lot gave me permission to say no. Um, one of the most fun things I've done since then is it probably been 50 to 100 uh, fellows and faculties that I've worked with that I've done the same thing for them, that I've written them that same prescription. And I sometimes I go visit them and I see it just like it is on my bulletin board. They have it pinned up on their bulletin board so they can look at it every day and just have that permission that it's okay to say no. That, that's great. And I think, I think the really big lesson there in healthcare um, uh, is that it, it's, it, and people may, may not recognize this easily or understand it, but uh, the way out of the dilemma we're in is not just what we do, but it's what we largely what we stop doing, right? Exactly. That's boy, Zev, you hit that on the head. That is that's that's true about the whole thing with overuse that we talked about too. It's it's not what we do. It's well, that's obviously important, but it's what we realize we need to stop doing. That's just just as important. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, uh, we've gone, uh, over an hour and I just, again, want to thank you so much, Dr. Dave Slauson for being a part of creating new healthcare and, and really bringing us tremendously fresh perspectives, really tremendous insights, new ideas and, and, uh, courageous, bold solutions that will, uh, n no doubt in my mind advance our sustainable value-based, uh, you know, consumer-oriented healthcare uh, system that we're trying to create. So, Dave, just want to thank you so much, seriously, from the bottom of my heart. Thank and, you, Zeb. And uh, and as always, Dave, I I, um, I I always have to thank our listeners uh, who are out there, some of whom are doing the hard work uh, each and every day of taking care of patients or those who are supporting uh, the people or the providers who are taking care of patients. Uh, I truly hope, and I can't imagine this hasn't been as inspiring for you as it has been for me. So uh, again, just want to thank you. And uh, until next time, be well. Take care, Dave. Thank you. You too, Zoe.